Together, a bat and ball cost £1.10. The bat costs £1 more than the ball. How much does the bat cost? Spoiler, your first answer might be wrong. Hi, I'm Natalie Britt. This is the Big Happy Life podcast. And today I am talking about your two brains. If you just answered that question with the answer £1, then welcome to System 1. You're really fast, super efficient, can literally do a million things at the same time brain. Sadly, it's also pretty sure of itself, pretty cocky, and often wrong. If you answered one pound, <coughs> think again. For this, you're going to need system two. System two is your logical, slow, much more effortful, can only do a couple of things at any given time brain. This part of your brain evolved to help you navigate very complex social situations. Situations in which you have to be able to understand and predict the behavior and feelings of other people in order to navigate whatever lies ahead, to choose your behavior, to choose what you're going to say, and to effectively plan so that you can remain connected with other people. Thinking about the brain this way, as System 1 and System 2, comes from the work of Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman. He wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, which is one of the best books to help you understand your brain and how it jumps to conclusions. And in this episode, I want to talk to you about the link between that fast-thinking System 1 brain and anxiety or depression or stress. And of course, I will tell you the answer to the bat and ball question too. Let's go. have geeked out about the brain quite a few times in the past and I want to do it again because I think there's some real power in understanding how your brain does its work. Because when you're able to place yourself in the role of observer you're kind of able to go oh yeah that's my brain kind of doing that thing it does. You get some element of choice and when you introduce choice you also introduce flexibility and with flexibility comes power. If you think about any situation where you have felt like you were completely stuck, like you had no options at all, how powerless and disempowering that felt. Whereas when you faced something challenging and you were able to go, okay, I can find my way out of this. It's not brilliant, but I trust myself. I know what to do. I've got this. And you were able to come up with something creative and something useful. You feel stronger, more powerful more grounded, and the experience feels different. So that was why I wanted to talk about these two brains again, because neither one is good or bad. They both serve particular functions, and understanding those functions and how they interplay with each other can help you create more flexibility, more choice, and more power in the way you handle your life. Like I said before, system one is fast instinctive. It wants a coherent story. It jumps to conclusions. In the bat and ball, it was one pound straight in because it sounded and felt right. That sense of certainty and ease is what system one loves. It would rather experience pain and be certain that it was right than experience possibility along with uncertainty. For my money, I think that's what keeps us in those kind of stuck loops where we can't find our way out. Because system one is so certain that it's right that it doesn't even attempt to involve system two to have the assumptions tested, 
to examine the beliefs or the experiences that it's brought forward or to creatively examine the potential for other options. And in the absence of system two, conscious thinking, these types of creative, flexible, possibility-seeking thoughts don't happen. Or at least they don't happen when we're in those stuck loops. Instead, system one narrows your focus. It simplifies things so that you can gain certainty of what's required, even if it's painful. And it carries out these simplifications in very specific ways. To help give you a picture of how this works, I'd like you to imagine going to a party. It's at a venue you've never been to before, and when you get there, you go through the door, you see a whole bunch of people seated, you recognize some people, but quite a lot of them are strangers, you've never seen them before, and you realize that this party has a theme, it's a beach theme. And so people are sitting on surfboards and they've got their food resting on surfboards, so clearly these things are being used as tables and chairs, and there's like palm trees and coconuts and all stuff everywhere. So you find some people you want to sit with, you go over, you sit down next to them, you start chatting, catching up, finding out what people have been up to since the last time you saw them. And then you overhear your name said at a table nearby from another conversation. And so momentarily, your attention shifts to that, to hear what they're saying. Now, in that story, your system one has done three things with the information you encountered. And you would likely have been oblivious to all three of those things. The first thing is referred to as generalizations. So when you got to the venue, it was somewhere you'd never been before, but you managed to figure out how to get in because you already understand how doors and entrances work. So even when you encounter one you've never seen before, you know what to do. That's a generalization. Generalizations are really useful because they help you figure out what to do next. Your brain goes, this thing is like that thing, so here's how to proceed. But it even does this in complex situations and in situations where that's not necessarily the right way to go. So you might encounter people who remind you of a family member, somebody you like or perhaps dislike, and you instantly feel those feelings associated with the new person too. That's your brain generalizing. It's applying the traits and characteristics of the known thing or person to the unknown thing or person. And so all of the known things get used to help you figure out what to do how to behave, what to say, can you trust this person? All of those types of questions are answered using this type of generalization. But that also means that system one is always backwards looking. The deductions made by system one are all related to experiences you've had, beliefs you hold, values you keep, and all of those things have historical meaning. They're not coming from the future, they're coming from the past. And that's one of the reasons that anxiety and depression and stress-related struggles can be so challenging. Because if you believe yourself to be that sort of person, I'm just anxious, I am prone to depression, I get stressed easily, then as soon as your brain generalizes situations where you go, okay, this is the kind of situation that really stresses me out, your brain will naturally do what it does in your normal stress response. But that response has come from a generalization. It has come from a meaning being applied from historical information where it's gone, this is like that. Understanding this backward-looking element of the pattern is one of the keys to finding your way out. The next thing that happened at that party was deletion and distortion. So let's look at the two of those things. 
naturally there's a lot going on at a party. And if you were taking it all in at a conscious level, you'd become very easily overwhelmed because you'd be able to hear hundreds of people talking simultaneously. You'd be taking in so much information from your surroundings. It would become just way, way too much for you to cope with. So what your brain does is it distorts the information that's relevant to you, such as the conversations you're engaged in or the elements of your surroundings that you are giving attention to or talking about. And those things are what we refer to as being distorted. So they get made larger or more prominent in your attention. And then we say the other stuff is deleted. So it's not literally that it doesn't exist. If your attention gets drawn to those things, they get brought into focus. They're still there, but they're easily absent from your conscious experience of the event. And so as an example, you might years after that party encounter somebody who ends up saying, oh yeah, I was there that night. And you have no recollection of them being there because you didn't notice them. And of course, the example that I gave in the story was that you were having a conversation and then you heard your name spoken at another table nearby. Now, for you to have heard your name, your brain would have had to be scanning the other conversations, yet you were not consciously aware of that process taking place. And that's because system one would deem it irrelevant and delete it from your consciousness, allowing you to distort or focus on the conversation you were having. That is, until your name was mentioned, in which case now it becomes relevant. And so system one distorts that conversation in order to attract your attention to it. In doing that, the conversation you were first having, the one at your own table, might then get pushed into the background and parts of that could be deleted. So then when you kind of zone back in, you realize that you've missed something that someone said. That was system one deleting it in order to allow you to focus where it thought your focus was needed. Of course, in those situations, it's really easy to see the value of deletions and distortions. But your brain is doing this all the time. In every situation, with every conversation, every time you meet somebody, literally every second of every day, it is shaping your experience of reality. This is one of the reasons you can have the same experience as somebody else. And then when you come to talk about it, it's like you were in two different places, like you were doing two different things. You're going, how do you think that? Where did that even come from? It's how you and a friend can meet somebody and one of you thinks this person is lovely and the other one thinks the person's terrible. It all comes down to generalizations, deletions, and distortions. Everything you do see here, it's all being filtered this way. If it wasn't, you wouldn't be able to function because you would be listening to all the conversations, you'd be seeing all of the people, and it would be hard for you to recognize the ones you knew and the ones you didn't. Every time you approached a novel situation, you would be completely unsure about what to do. You'd be at a total loss. So that kind of system one thinking is very powerful and very useful. But when it's not serving us, it's better for us to have the tools to be able to get into the operating system and to go, okay, let's change things up a little bit in here because the things that are being generalized, the things that are being deleted and distorted are not really helping me. I'm ending up feeling depressed or anxious or stressed because I keep thinking the same way and I keep reacting the same way. Of course, the trouble with that comes from the fact that system one likes certainty and rightness. And so if there's a belief that what you are doing is protective and is right, and you believe that at some fundamental level, then it's very hard to change. And because system two thinking is so laborious and so energy consuming, it's not something that your brain will do naturally, at least not in situations where threat to your survival has been registered. And as I mentioned before, it doesn't have to be literal threat to your survival. 
But that is effectively what a stress or anxiety response is. It's system one detecting a threat. In these situations, you have two approaches you could adopt. But before we look at those two approaches, it's best to recognize the hallmarks of when system one is running the show. The first hallmark is total certainty that you are right. As I've mentioned before, we live in very, very complex social environments. So rightness is not something that generally exists when other people are involved. And what I mean by that is there is rarely one way to do things. There's rarely one guaranteed outcome or one guaranteed explanation for something. So if you are certain and cannot be swayed, even though other people might disagree with you, What that tells you is that you are experiencing the product of system one thinking. Now, in some cases, this can serve you really well. If you are absolutely hell bent on making a success of something and people are telling you, you know, it's a big risk, you might not succeed, blah, blah, blah. But you feel really motivated and powerful and ready to do it. And you're absolutely sure you can make it happen. Again, the certainty isn't real. It's felt but it's positive and it could serve you really well on your journey. But when you're miserable and experiencing that certainty, well, that's probably worth questioning. The next hallmark is related to the first one, and that is where you feel completely stuck. You feel like you have no options or there's only one possibility here. That is also an illusion that is coming from generalizations, deletions, and distortions. So as an example, you hate your job and you'd absolutely love to quit, but You are stuck because you have a mortgage to pay and a family to feed and bills to pay. And so you drudge through it day in and day out. And you feel like you have no choice because the job market is terrible and there are no good options because you don't have a degree and there are other people who are younger than you and there's this whole story. And so you have the sense of both certainty and stuckness and you continue to go to the job. But let's look at how many variables are in that story that are not actually stuck. Your financial situation is based on you keeping everything exactly the same. Does that have to be the case? The work decision is based on you keeping everything exactly the same, continuing your job the same way, continuing to do it the same way, you having little or no influence in changing things, the people around you being stuck in their ways and being completely unswayable. Is all that really true? Are you certain it's true? If it is true, then nobody has ever influenced them before and nobody ever will again. Is that true? Now, what naturally happens when these sorts of questions are posed is that system one will now tell you that I'm oversimplifying and that your situation is different and that even though you would love to have a conversation with your boss or you'd love to open an animal shelter or a bar on a beach or whatever your dream is, it's just not possible. And what I want to say to you is that is system one. It's one version of reality based on the current generalizations, deletions, and distortions that your brain is running. If you were somebody who thought differently or believed different things, different options would be presenting themselves to you right now. You still could feel stuck and you still could be running a story, but it wouldn't be the story you're currently running. There are always, always choices. So the minute you find yourself feeling completely certain or stuck, know that you are experiencing the hallmarks of system one. In addition to these are the hallmarks of anxiety and stress system one generalizations, deletions and distortions. In this situation, everything seems like a threat. You kind of filter out the positive, you filter out the things you could be grateful for, you filter out the things that you're happy with, 
or satisfied with, and you distort the negative, the things you don't have, the things you can't control, the things that are bugging you, the things that are stressing you out or that you're unsatisfied with. And if you have a history of anxiety or stress-related struggles, then it's easy to generalize those into the situation as well. And then you have stories about who you are and what you're capable of and how this thing is likely to play out. So couple these with that sense of rightness and certainty. And what you have is something that feels so unbearable because now you're distorting all this bad stuff. Everything feels threatening and you feel like there's no way out and you're also certain there's no way out. And that is incredibly challenging. And that's where our two approaches come in. If system one is freaking out and you are experiencing high stress or anxiety, one of the most important things you can do is learn to calm your nervous system. So if I just very briefly explain the kind of structure of where these two systems are in the brain, if you imagine traveling up your spine, past your neck, to the base of your skull, the part of your brain that's right at the bottom, that is where part of system one is. Keep traveling up the back of your head towards the crown and the other part of system one is there. So there are two kind of structures in the brain and they are often referred to as the reptilian and the mammalian brain. And together, those two pieces make system one. They run your emotions, your nervous system, all of the heart rate, breathing, pupil dilation, basically all the body's regulatory functions and all the body's instinctive functions. Then from the crown all the way to your forehead is the prefrontal cortex. That was the last part of the brain to evolve, and that is where system two is. That's the kind of logical, conscious, thinking mind. Now, the entire brain is, of course, connected with the nervous system, but system one, those two parts of the lower brain, are so interconnected with the nervous system that they can't really be thought of as separate things. You could almost say... Your brain is in your body when it comes to those instincts. That's how system one can have you jump out of the way of a moving car before you even register consciously that it's coming at you. So just as that brain can move your body, your body can move that brain. So calming the body kind of short circuits. It sends messages of safety to that instinctive part of the brain and allows it to calm down. And once it's calm, the deletions, distortions, and generalizations tend then to function better. They tend to be less focused on the negative, less focused on the anxiety-provoking elements in your situation, and more likely to give you better options. That's why meditation and breathing exercises and all those sorts of things are so recommended because they are basically tripwires for system one to help it calm and to help it reduce that survival response that can cause it to go a bit haywire. So calming your nervous system usually involves some form of mindful practice, bringing your attention to the present moment, bringing your attention to the body and doing something that alerts your nervous system to your safety. So it brings safety into focus. It distorts the sensations of safety. In other words, it allows you to place your attention on those rather than place your attention on the things that are making you feel unsafe or believe yourself to be unsafe. Deep breaths into the belly can be really helpful. Doing that even for just a minute can be really helpful. But there are also other breath practices, much more formalized practices, and you can find so much information on YouTube. A great place to start is a channel called Evolution of Dave. I'm hoping to have him on as a guest as part of this series, but 
Dave is effectively a dad who was struggling with anxiety and depression and who got to the point where he just thought, you know what, I have to live differently and I'm going to go off and figure out how to feel better and how to do better. And his roads led him to various types of breath work. So check out Evolution of Dave on YouTube and you can find the link in the show notes page of this episode as well. Actually, a practice that I found really helpful was one I learned on the channel Evolution of Dave and that is the Wim Hof Method. I've mentioned that in the past before, but effectively it's a breathing technique followed by a cold shower. Now that was one of the most profoundly liberating things I have ever done in terms of taking control of my nervous system. Because when you get into a cold shower in the middle of winter, you naturally spike a huge stress response. It feels terrible. Or at least it did when I first started. But you take deep breaths and you stand there. And you suddenly realize that you have total control of yourself. And you train your mind and your body to be able to withstand that kind of discomfort and to still know you're safe. And actually, I attribute my ability to, after that, have been able to give up alcohol, something I had struggled with for years prior to that. I attribute to the strength I gathered from the Wim Hof Method. Again, I'll put some links in the show notes. Wim Hof is super popular right now, and there are loads of resources, both on his channel, through his app, the courses, there's all kinds of stuff. So you are in no shortage of information about the Wim Hof Method if it's something you want to try. So all of those approaches are related to calming the nervous system, working on your brain via your body. And the other option is to use System 2, is to begin to think differently. This involves conscious thought. And so for this, a variety of techniques can work. But there's a very important caveat here. Telling yourself you're making a big deal of nothing, minimizing your experience, or telling yourself you're wrong is highly unlikely to cause system one to change course. If anything, it'll lock down further and it will start deleting, distorting and generalizing to prove you wrong, to prove that it is absolutely right to be freaking out. And so... So if you're going to choose the think your way out approach, you have to do it with total acceptance and total respect for everything that system one gives you. And one of the best practices I have found for that is journaling, because it allows you to think about what system one is doing that's productive, what it's doing that it thinks is worth doing and where that's coming from. And when you go into it with that mindset and you start to see how it might be trying to serve you you can free yourself far more easily. If you fight it and you disrespect it, it will fight back. And it generally wins because it's faster and it's stronger and it requires almost no energy to keep it going. But journaling is a great way to be respectful and curious. And what it also does is it forces you to make sense of your experience using language. Now, language is part of the conscious brain's work. So the language centers reside in the system two processing area in the neocortex. And so in order to make sense of your emotions, you have to really use your brain, use your conscious thinking brain to make sense of what you're feeling and of the stories you're telling yourself. And in doing that, you can kind of break the patterns because you start to see them slightly differently, gain a new perspective get a little bit of distance, kind of observe them. And also, usually with system one, the fast system, things are happening in kind of flashes. They're happening in pictures or sounds. 
There are feelings and sensations. But when you journal, you have to take all of that and construct it as a sentence. And that forces you to do things differently. It forces you to have some distance between the experience and you. And that distance is where you find power. If you imagine somebody you know and love experiencing something really challenging, and you can really empathize, you totally get what that feels like, but there is still a layer of distance between you and them where you don't wear the experience. It's not your experience. You can observe it and you can understand it and you may even feel some of the similar emotions, but ultimately you are an observer. And that's what journaling does for your own experiences. It allows you to place yourself in the role of observer, to give yourself the distance you need to be able to think through the issue with more clarity. And where you need more help than that, then the work of a mindset coach or life coach or other people who can assist you can again help you break those patterns. So what a coach will do is usually ask you a series of questions and based on your responses, will begin to help you unpack how system one is operating for you. What do those pictures and flashes and sounds and sensations look and feel like in your body and in your mind? How do they create your stories? Where did those stories come from? And so we begin to use your conscious mind to explore your unconscious mind and the various rules and generalizations and deletions and distortions that exist within it. And when you have that information, again, you have enough distance to begin to select, to go, okay, my brain's doing that now. Uh, that's not working for me. I'm going to do something else. And as soon as you have that kind of power through the distance that you've gathered and the perspective that you've gathered, you have more choice. And the minute you have more choice and flexibility, you can move in another direction. And that feels powerful. This knowledge of the functioning of the brain has been one of the real key drivers for the habits that I've invested in and the things that have helped me turn around my own experiences of anxiety and depression. And of course, these things can be really deeply rooted and we have to be patient with ourselves. And so it's really important for me to say at this point, I've been at this work for over a decade and there are still things I'm learning about myself, still layers I am peeling back and stories I am making sense of. But every time I do, I gain a little bit more power because I get a little bit more perspective and a little bit more flexibility. And every time that happens, new possibilities emerge and the same can be true for you. If you have comments or questions or you would like to find out more about coaching, visit bighappylife.co.uk and everything you need can be accessed via the homepage. But before I go, I told you that I would give you the answer to the bat and ball question. So the bat cost £1.5. It cost £1 more than the ball. The ball was 5p. The bat would be £1.5. Now that required system two thinking to slow you down enough for that feeling of rightness to be overridden and for you to realize that the easy answer was not the correct one. So the key message here is simple. If there's a coherent story that looks and feels right to you, and yet the environment and the situation is actually pretty complex and there are other people involved, it's pretty much a guarantee that your system one is oversimplifying, deleting, distorting, and generalizing information. And when that's not working for you, there are things you can do. The more you practice those things, the better you get at managing system one, and that gives you power. I hope this episode has helped and I would love to hear from you if it has. But for now, thanks for listening. 